Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. Today I'm joined by Harriet Johnson, a second time guest on this podcast, and we are going to be talking about her upcoming book, Enough, The Violence Against Women and How to End It. The Better Human Podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to know more about the podcast and hear about Harriet's upcoming book tour and where you can see her in person or online, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Please also um, think about supporting the podcast by either leaving a positive review or contributing to allow it to keep going in a sustainable way. Thanks, Harriet, for coming back on the podcast. Um, We met the first time you came on the podcast to talk about um, violence against women was, I think, just before the pandemic. So we met in person. Um, Since then, you have done lots of things, but one of the exciting projects um, you have undertaken is writing a whole book on this topic. It's called Enough. um, And we're going to talk about it in in today's episode. um, And we're going to go through um how how it sort of fits together what what you what conclusions you reached in the book what people can find in it um but also the the process of writing it and how that impacted on you and and your thinking so let's start from why you've written this book what what what, what's the what's the urgency well i think when it's impossible to talk about this subject without talking about Sarah Everard and her kidnap and rape and murder, that event that we saw um, at the height of the pandemic, I think really raised the issue of violence against women and especially police response to violence against women. It brought it right to the front of public consciousness. And I noticed that I was being asked more and more for a legal perspective on it, to talk about the things that you and I talked about when we last spoke for the podcast. And it seemed to me that there was a a lack of understanding of all of the the complexity of the problems and the interrelationship between the law and culture and public policy and the ways that those worked, or in some cases didn't work, to protect women from violence. And you start the book with, with Sarah Everard. Do you want to just talk about who she was, why her case or the her the example of her murder really sort of cut through the, the, in the national consciousness? So I, she was a woman in her early 30s who was walking home from a friend's house one night. Um, during the pandemic, she was walking home a short distance and was stopped, we now know, by Wayne Cousins, who it seems used his warrant card to stop her. Wayne Cousins was at the time a serving police officer. He used his warrant card to stop her and to arrest her. He put her in the back of his car, kidnapped her, raped and murdered her. The, I think her initial disappearance resonated with so many women because, as I've said in the book, so much of what we do as women and so much of the way we conduct ourselves as women is designed without us necessarily even really thinking about it to protect ourselves. So we, a lot of us have these self-imposed rules about not going out alone or 
not flirting with people or, you know, texting our friends when we get home. All of these things that we do to try and make ourselves feel safer. And I think one of the reasons that the Sarah Everard case, when it was only known that she had disappeared, really struck so many women is because even applying the most victim blamey tests of society, she had done literally nothing wrong. She was walking home a short distance. She wasn't dressed revealingly. She wasn't flirting with anybody. She um, she had done absolutely nothing wrong. And I think that made a lot of women think, well, how much smaller can we make ourselves in order to be safe? And the answer, of course, is we can't. So I think that's why um, her her disappearance resonated with so many people. And then that frustration and concern when it emerged that she'd in fact been murdered by a serving police officer and that he'd used authority he had as a result of being a serving police officer to affect this kidnap and, and rape and murder. I think that translated to fury for a lot of women because if I think the thinking is if we're not safe from the police then where are we ever safe? And certainly the police response to the Sarah Everard vigil on Clapham Common um, didn't help with that at all. And and there was a whole, you know, it, it was it. Uh, how can I express it in the way? Because I, I obviously was involved in the in the um, with the reclaim these streets case, which was just um, we just had the judgment last week. So was involved in the aftermath in in a way. And and uh, the way I think about it is the facts of it. I mean, there's so much violence against women there's so much there's so many different examples but something about this case about the fact that it was somebody it was the person who's meant to be the protector the only the only protector the police who exploited his position as the protector and then the police themselves prevented a a very sort of you know what's the right word a very peaceful very non-confrontational um, event happening just to commemorate that, just to reclaim the space. I mean, that's the that's the point of the of of the vigil to reclaim the space and to make it safe, or at least um, try and make it safe. For the police to prevent that, for it all to be all happening at the same time was 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 almost too much. It was too much to bear. Um, that was my feeling, you, you know, as as a man looking on, I mean, what it must be like for for women who put themselves in those shoes every day, in, in Sarah Everard's shoes, it, it just is too much. Mm. It, and 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 I guess it may, and and it's enough. Is the other way of of thinking about it. Yeah, and that's I mean that's where the title of the book came from was this overwhelming sense in the aftermath of Sarah Everard's murder that that a point had been reached for women where it was no longer acceptable. It was no longer possible to carry on living this way in the knowledge that not only were women not safe from strangers, not only are women not safe from domestic abuse, not only are women not safe in the streets, but that the very people, as you say, who are supposed to be the, the safety net, the final backstop are in fact presenting at least in this case a danger themselves and so the book um that you've written um i've been lucky enough to get a pre-release copy um when, when's it out what date's it out 
It's the 14th of April is when it officially comes out, but you can pre-order it now. I think I'm probably contractually obliged to say. Okay, good. Well, everybody should, and, we'll, and I'll and I'll make sure to include links um, to that. But the book, my, my sense of the book is, and particularly, uh, you know, the way it starts with, um, it is kind of a, almost like a toolkit um, for, for people. It's not just a... Uh, it's not just saying these are all the things that are wrong. It's also mm. in providing these sort of pithy summaries um, of different offences, of different areas of law where violence against women um, comes into play. It seems like it, you're, you're, it strikes me you're trying to be proactive and giving people the tools to to do something about this, this, this very difficult, um, almost unbearable reality. That's absolutely right. And I, one of the things that's really struck me in the work that I do with women and particularly women who've been victims of violence or abuse is how little people who aren't lawyers know about their own rights. And I, I think that chimes very well with what you're doing with, with this project, uh, this podcast and your entire project is trying to make sure that people know what their rights are, because if we don't know what they are, we have no hope of enforcing them. I remember when I, I didn't do a full law degree, I did a law conversion course after my undergraduate um, degree. And I remember being astonished to learn the definition of a sexual assault and to learn that, in fact, having my bum pinched or my breasts grabbed at or, you know, having somebody rub up against me when I was in a bar or in a club was not, in fact, just a normal thing that had to happen and that we just had to put up with as women that it's actually sexual assault. And it may be that having your bum pinched is one of the least serious types of sexual assault, um, but it's still technically a sexual assault. And it astonished me to learn that and that I had got to the age of 24 without knowing that and that none of my friends knew that. Likewise, women I know or women I've represented who've been stalked hadn't thought that there was anything they could do about it and I've said in the book about how one of the one of the characteristics of victims of stalking is that they often blame themselves a lot and think perhaps it was their fault perhaps they should have done more to stop it and I think that's part of the reason why more women don't report it but I think also there's this acceptance that so much of this behavior is just part of ordinary life and this feeling that maybe there isn't anything we can do about it. And that was why it was really important to me, especially in part one of the book, where I lay out what the status quo is. So what the situation is when it comes to violence against women and the different offences. Exactly what the crimes are and exactly what can be done about them, as well as things like how often they occur and the impact on marginalised and vulnerable women. And each um, section which relates to a particular offence, has a, a little subtitle, um, a provocative subtitle. So with homicide, it's she provoked him. Um, with sexual violence, it's what were you wearing? With um, domestic abuse, it's why didn't you just leave? Do you want to talk about why you use those those subtitles? I think one of the themes of the book is about how for real change, we need not just to use the laws and to enforce the laws, not just potentially new laws, but we need real cultural change. And that is within the police, within the legal system, 
but also within wider society generally. And one of the things I wanted to do in particular in part one is to dispel some of those myths. So if we, for example, talk about the this question that often gets asked of people who are survivors of domestic abuse, why didn't you just leave? I've, I've gone into a little more detail in that section about why it is so very, very hard for people in abusive relationships to leave and about how part of the abuse for many people involves gradually being worn down to the point where the the victim feels worthless and feels as if it is in some way her fault. There's also the fact that abusers often isolate their victims from their friends and family. So the support networks that many of us would turn to during difficult times are no longer available to them. And there's also the fact that abuse often involves financial control. So if you then look at a situation where you've got a woman who's been made to believe that she is worthless in every way, who has no friends or family left that she can see who can tell her otherwise, and no money that she might be able to use to escape, it becomes a bit easier to see that the question, why didn't you just leave, is actually missing the point substantially. I think that's a great point about culture, because we as lawyers and, and the, law, the legal system itself is, is only a sort of, in a way, it's only a, a small element of... Um, of social reality, if I put it like that, and 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 and, and I'm guessing, for lawyers, lawyers often have I think the the same experience that you can have a law, and even you can have a new law that deals with something, but the idea that that law will just solve the problem by making something illegal is is a fallacy. I mean, it just it's just it's obviously wrong, you know. It, it like you say. If people, the vast majority of people will not, if they don't know what their rights are, why would they ever go to the police? They could, they wouldn't, they, they don't, if they don't know that a crime has been committed, they'll never go to the police and it will never go through the legal system. And, and equally, when you get to juries, there is, you know, you, you get into the, these attitudes come into the courtroom and not just juries, but judges of, you know, w- w- not our, you know, not our problem the um she deserved it why didn't you just leave those sorts of those sorts of attitudes um how can you start to deal with those the attitude public attitudes towards violence against women um and and is there what is the role of the law in all of that in setting the culture i think um self-policing within the law is really important and Certainly in in recent years and in some of the examples that I've given in the book, judges and the better training that they're receiving and probably as a result of the better training that they're receiving are taking a more active role in dismissing some of those stereotypes and some of those bigoted and outdated and untrue attitudes. There's an example I give in the book where a, a senior barrister, a QC, is arguing in the Court of Appeal for a shorter sentence for his client. His client was convicted of um, sexual activity with a child. And the QC said, I'll get the exact words wrong, but it was something about how the young girl in question was no stranger to drinking. And he was interrupted by one of the Court of Appeal judges who said, 
effectively, I don't see what difference that makes. He was in charge of a 13-year-old girl. He plied her with drink and then he sexually assaulted her. And he, the barrister came back again and tried to make that same point that it's not like he was assaulting a girl who'd never had a drink before, which point another court of appeal judge cut in and said to him, I don't think that blaming the victim is going to get you very far here. Um, he was reported to the Bar Council and was sanctioned and was was made to go on the vulnerable witness training course, which I really do think, and it's one of the recommendations I've made in the book, should be compulsory for all lawyers. Um, because as we know, with training, unfortunately, the people who need to take it most are very often the people who don't take it. Um, so I think judges are getting better at enforcing um, the training that they've had. I think lawyers are getting better um, partly through things like the vulnerable witness training. But I also think, and I've, I've made this point in the book, if it's a perverse benefit of the stats about how ubiquitous violence against women is, that if 76% of women have been catcalled at some point in their lives, if 20% of women have been sexually assaulted since the age of 16, then statistically, you are likely to have at least one victim of sexual assault on your jury. And if you've got a victim of sexual assault on your jury and you decide the best way to defend your client is by relying on these outdated and untrue tropes of victim blaming, then not only are you not serving the culture or the bar, you're also not serving your client because you are defending um, a culture that you know at least one member of your jury is strongly likely to disagree with so it's it's it becomes um this is where education i think becomes really important because when barristers know the extent of the problem a good barrister will shape their argument to fit the jury they're likely to have and i think if barristers are aware of how many people are likely to have been affected by this or likely to know somebody who've been who's been affected by it then they should change their their strategy significantly to acknowledge that were those judges men or women? They were men. Encouraging. Very encouraging. Although the four examples I've given in the book of men who have victim blamed or victim shamed as a result or during the course of their submissions, unfortunately, were also men. And and do you think, have you found in the time that you've been in practice, um, you've been in practice, I, I guess, for just over a decade, have you found that things have changed in the justice system? It's difficult to say. I, I feel like they have, but I have quite a small sample. I, I certainly remember being in the magistrate's court when I was a very baby barrister defending one of two women who'd been fighting and both were charged with assault. And the um, head of the bench when sentencing them remarked that this is very unladylike behavior, which, um, was faintly stunning at the time. I don't see remarks like that being made that often. That said, it was only maybe three years ago that I had a judge summarily in a Crown Court trial summarily revoke my client's bail um, without any warning. And when I raised to him the fact that she was a sole carer of two children, one of whom was severely disabled, um, his, his response was, well, she'd better give somebody her keys. So I think there are still a lot of problems out there in terms of judges' understanding of women and women's responsibilities and caring responsibilities generally. 
But I do think things are getting better. So, for example, since I started out in practice, there's been an introduction in criminal trials of a special um, set of instructions from a judge to a jury, where if we're talking about a case of sexual assault or rape, a judge specifically tells the jury to ignore the stereotypes that they think of when they imagine how they think a rape victim should behave or how they think a a rapist might behave. And that's been really helpful because it not just it doesn't just say ignore stereotypes. It goes into some of the details about harmful stereotypes. And it says in the experience of judges who've had many, many, many trials like this, those stereotypes are not true. And that, I think, has gone some way to address the questions that perhaps would have been left hanging for juries in the past of, you know, why didn't she report it straight away, for example, those questions are now not as much of a factor as they perhaps were when I first started out. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. So let's talk about the just this part two of the book, um, a justice system that fails women. Um, and we've touched on it already, but w- w- what are the key elements of the, the failure? in the justice system? Well, I think unfortunately, um, I see, or I have, I've seen failures at every level in the research for this book. When we talk about the difficulty, for example, to go back to that example we were just talking about, when we talk about the difficulty of securing, uh, securing convictions in cases of sexual assault or rape, we often think about the difficulties of persuading a jury or the difficulties of giving evidence in court. The statistics we have from July 2021 show that just 1.6% of reported rapes result in somebody even being prosecuted. Now, if about two thirds of those, which is the best data we have available, result in a conviction, then we're looking at 1% of reported rapes that result in a conviction. If 90 8.4, that was my maths, if 98.4% of reported rapes never even result in a suspect being charged, let alone going to court, then the biggest problem isn't necessarily what happens in court, it's what happens before the case gets to court, it's what happens with the police and with the CPS. And that's been a huge problem revealed by certainly the work that I've done over the last 12 or so years, and also in the research that I was doing for the book, There's case after case of women reporting um, serious violence, serious sexual violence, and being belittled or ridiculed or disbelieved by the police who are supposed to be helping to protect them and to walk them through this incredibly difficult process of reporting one of the most horrible things that can happen to a person. Now that statistic, and I know we, we when we last spoke um, on this podcast, we talked about that statistic. That statistic is is almost unbelievable. I mean, it's almost unbelievably bad. Um, but I want to try and just dig into it a bit and understand it. 
So, so first of all, when you say reported rapes, is that rapes that are reported to the police? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so you've got almost no rapes that are reported to the police. I mean, we're you know in the one percent you know uh, range are being charged. Now, what do you think the the key reasons for that are? You know, what 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 what's the barrier? Um, is it lack of evidence? Is it a difficult? Is it a problem with the law? Is it a problem with the police? Is it a problem with the CPS, uh, the Crown Prosecution Service, or you know, or is it a mixture? I think it's a mixture. I think it comes down to resources. I think it comes down to training, and I think it comes down to culture. So, forty percent of police forces across England and Wales no longer have specialist RASO units. So, RASO stands for Rape and Serious Sexual Offences. That means they no longer have specialist facilities for dealing with people who um, come to make allegations that they've suffered rape or a serious sexual assault. That makes it much, much more difficult for those police forces to to process those allegations and to properly investigate them, particularly to investigate them in a, a speedy way. Lack of training is a huge problem, I think, and and that comes down to um, not just training in how to deal with people making these allegations, but also cultural training. We've seen with, um, if you look at the case of Valerie Ford, who was murdered by her husband, her daughter was also, sorry, her partner. Her daughter was also murdered by her partner. This happened after she had reported to the police that her partner had threatened to burn down their flat with her and her daughter in it. Police recorded that as a threat to property and did nothing more about the domestic side of things. Now, I think a huge part of that is um, that she was a black woman. And what we see repeatedly in the statistics and in the anecdotes is black women going to the police to seek help and being treated very differently from white women. They're significantly less likely to receive referrals to specialist rape centers than white women are. And I think there is this stereotypical and false notion that black women are strong and therefore not needing as much assistance as women from other ethnicities. So the campaign for Valerie's Law, which is being debated in Parliament on the 28th of March, would make cultural training for police officers mandatory to deal with not just um, addressing their conscious and unconscious biases, but also things like the fact that on darker skinned black women, bruises don't show as clearly as, as they do on lighter skinned women. And yet these women are often told, well, there are no bruises, so we can't prosecute this case. So better training in terms of how to investigate and how to successfully prosecute sexual assault, better training in terms of culture. And then um, when it comes to culture within the police, I think that is a huge problem. A number of senior women who have left the police and gone on to become whistleblowers to talk about the culture that they suffered while working as police officers. We've seen evidence of rape jokes being made in uh, WhatsApp groups, not just with Wayne Cousins and, and his, the other officers in his unit, but the revelation from Charing Cross Police Station that came out in February of messages between their officers in which rape was treated as a punchline 
these are the same officers who then were going out to the front desk to take down a statement of rape from somebody minutes after joking about it. That cannot be conducive to a justice system that respects rape victims or that goes out of its way to secure them justice, which is what should be happening. And indeed, we've seen the, the Charing Cross revelations it seems with a donkey, the, the, the straw that broke the donkey's back in terms of the, the, the commissioner for the Metropolitan Police, Cressida Dick, um, resigning or being sacked or, you know, jumping before she was pushed. Um, the, the Met plays a, a very big role in all of this, doesn't it? Because it's because it's the big, because it's the um, country's biggest police force, because it sets the, sets the agenda um, for, for policing in in the country do you feel like the the met i'd put it like this when when cressida dick was uh, left her post there was quite a lot of debate amongst you know in the media about where the met is and where you know is it you know there was some people say well it's kind of hopelessly lost it's not going anywhere there were other people saying well it's made a lot of it's changed a lot you know, over over its big big ticket issues that it's been criticised for, so particularly over race, racial um, prejudice and violence against women, it's changed a lot, but it's it's not changing fast enough, or or it will get there eventually. You know, what, what, it, first of all, is it possible to assess such a big organisation and make a judgment on it um, when there's lots of little institutions within it, like Charing Cross Police Station, that might be. Um, sort of poison, have poisonous, poisonous culture, which isn't represented in other places. And secondly, where do you think the Met is, and, and can anything be done about the issues within it um, by whoever is the next commissioner? I think it it can be difficult to assess the Met on the data that we've got. And I think, um, as you know, I'm currently involved in litigation on behalf of the Centre for Women's Justice to try to make the Angiolini inquiry, which is the inquiry that looks into the death of Sarah Everard, first of all, to try and make it statutory. So it has real teeth, real power to compel witness witnesses and real power to make significant and serious recommendations, but also to get it to look at more than just Sarah Everard's case, because although the example of Wayne Cousins is horrific and the fact that he was able to continue as a police officer despite all of the red flags about him and his behaviour is shocking. It's absolutely, in my experience, the tip of the iceberg in terms of Met culture. So I think on the data we have, it's not currently possible to say for certain where the problem is or exactly what the problems are or the extent of the problems. And I think the Angiolini inquiry, if it only focuses on Sarah Everard and on Wayne Cousins in particular, is a huge wasted opportunity to get to the bottom of that. I would say that in terms of the data we have, it's not promising. So over 50% of Met police officers found guilty of sexual misconduct keep their jobs. Is that, is that found guilty in the disciplinary processes? In the disciplinary process, yeah, yeah. of sexual misconduct. Um, they're not dismissed from their post, they go back to work. Um, there's a statistic that came out uh, today about how 80% of officers within the Met who've had domestic violence allegations made against them um, carry on in post. Now, of course, I'm not saying that all of those allegations are true, but that number seems extraordinarily high to me that 80% of them remain in post. And certainly when writing the book, 
I found evidence of significant problems of officers who have domestic violence allegations made against them, them being investigated by their own colleagues, which doesn't seem to pass the um, conflict of interest test to me. So there are huge problems within the Met and with the way the Met operates. And that's evident in the statistics that we have. I think it's also borne out in the uh, the case studies that I've seen for the book and that I've seen in my practice. So let's go. Let's talk about the third section of your book, um, which is uh, uh, the the title of the book. In fact, is not just enough. It has a subtitle, um, which is the violence against women and how to end it. Um, so you so the first two sections are about the violence against women. You know how you, you present that statistically, uh, culturally, um, in terms of the problems in the law and the legal system, but the, the how to end it. Um, do, do you think we can end violence against women? Yeah, that felt like quite an ambitious title, but I, I wanted to set myself a, a good challenge. Um, as far as I know, nobody's managed to completely end violence against women for the history of humanity, but I decided I was going to do it in 30,000 words somehow. Um, I do think it's possible, but I think it takes real work and a real a, a revolution. There's no, there's no um, softer word for it. I think... I've examined in the book some of the possibilities for how we can bring about political change and for how we can bring about change within the justice system, including the police. We also need real, meaningful, long-lasting cultural change. And I think those all feed into each other because one of the points that I've made in the book is that there's no shortage of really good ideas for how to better protect women and how to, um, well, how to reduce and hopefully eventually end violence against women. Those measures are repeatedly voted down or unable to be funded or dismissed by the government. I mean, if we look recent, if we look at the recent um, fact that the, the government has voted twice now not to make misogyny a hate crime, and that when asked about it before it came to a vote, Boris Johnson said that it would it would take up too much police resources to look at misogyny as a hate crime, as if to say that misogyny is such a serious problem that the police have decided to do nothing about it. And that's one of the real problems we have. There are good ideas. Making misogyny a hate crime, for those of your listeners who might not be aware of how hate crimes legislation works, it doesn't necessarily create a new offence, but it means that if a person commits a crime, and that that crime is motivated by hatred for a particular category, then that person gets a more serious offence, uh, serious sentence. Forgive me. So it's already true that if I um, if I beat somebody up in the street and I do it because they're trans and I hate trans people, or because they're black and I hate black people, or because of their religion or other protected characteristics. They get a, I would get a more serious sentence than I would if I was just doing it because I like fighting. But at the moment, despite the overwhelming prevalence of violence against women, it's not the case that being a woman is a protected characteristic. And so we don't get, um, in terms of hate crime legislation, so because misogyny is not a hate crime, you don't get a more serious offence, uh, you don't get a more serious sentence if you beat somebody up because you hate them because they're a woman. That's baffling to me. That's something that would make a real difference. It's something that House of Lords has voted in favour of. 
the government's now voted against it twice. And so actions like that, that would make a real difference, there doesn't seem to be the political will to introduce them. Instead, we have a government saying that they are proposing a specific crime of street harassment, which again, some of your listeners might know, is in most cases already a crime. So the Public Order Act makes it a crime to use threatening or abusive behaviour in public that's likely to cause harassment, alarm or distress. It's already a crime to harass people. It's already a crime to stalk people. But for some reason, the government would rather introduce a new law that covers things that are already covered by old laws than make a new law that might actually make a difference. And you taught you, you've got a long section in um in in the final bit, um, how to end it on cultural change. We've spoken about cultural change. Um now assuming that laws, as much as we love laws <laughs> as lawyers and we think they're great um and very impact impactful and powerful, they aren't gonna change they aren't gonna create a revolution. No law has ever created a revolution. Um revolutions create laws, if I put put it like that. So what do you think can be done culturally? I think we have to stay as angry now as we were after Sarah Everard was murdered. I think we have to stay as angry now as we were when we heard the details about Wayne Cousins and about the WhatsApp groups and about his nickname and about the fact that he'd used his ID to get her into the car. What was his nickname? His nickname was The Rapist. And that seems not to have raised any alarm bells with anybody. Or, 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 or it did raise alarm bells, but they didn't bother to do anything about it because it wasn't seen as a problem. It was sort of, it was, it was seen as a bit of a, you know, a bit, a bit of a joke that he'll end up raping somebody because he's just that kind of guy. He's a bit, a bit rapey. I think they, 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 they said. Yeah. Which is a sign again, that uh, there's a, a phrase that I, have Nick from my dad um, and that I've used twice in the book because it is so, so pointed, which is the culture you get is the behaviour you tolerate. And I think one of the problems we have within the police, within broader society, if we look at the fact that over half of met police officers who are found to have committed sexual misconduct keep their jobs, that is not zero tolerance of sexual misconduct amongst police officers. And I think until we have zero tolerance, we're not going to have cultural change within the police. I think until we have zero tolerance of violence against women in society more generally, we're not going to get any cultural change. So it's a difficult thing because women, I think, certainly a lot of women are utterly exhausted by this stage because we're not asking women who have lived a perfect life of equality up until now to take up arms. We're asking women who have lived their entire lives under the constant threat of male violence and dealing with all of the other types of unfairness and discrimination that come with it, like unequal pay, for example, that aren't violence, but there are certainly a form of oppression. And we're asking those women and men to really keep campaigning, to stay furious, to write to their MPs, to protest, to vote, to campaign to really make sure as much as we possibly can that violence against women and women's equality stays right at the top of the political agenda. Because as you said, it's revolutions that bring about laws and the laws aren't going to change if we don't force them to change. 
Likewise, we've got to try to use the laws that we have. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because so many of the laws that we have aren't enforced. If we look at the if we look at the rape statistics, 1.6% of reported rapes resulting in somebody being prosecuted, that is not a law that's working well. We've got to enforce the laws that we have. And that includes using, for example, the victim's right to review, which means that if a woman is told that her rape case can't be taken forward for one reason or another, she has the right to have that decision reviewed. If that review comes back and is negative, she has the option to consider legal action, which is something that I've spoken to you about before as part of my practice is bringing a civil case under Article 3 of the Human Rights Act, because the government, the state, has a duty not just not to inflict inhuman or degrading treatment or torture on its citizens, but also to properly investigate it when, when its citizens are subjected to that treatment. So that's the way in. We use the Human Rights Act and we say to the courts, it is unacceptable that not only this violation happened to me, but that police refused to investigate it. Um, I was just, um, when you mentioned men getting involved, I was thinking about the bit um, in the book where it, you say that in the aftermath of Sarah Everard's murder, thousands of men signed up for a course entitled Exploring Masculinities and Allyship Training for Men. Around 90% did, did not show up. Um, and, and, it, and it made me think and, and reflect on something you, you just said about um, keeping angry. That one of the issues with one of the challenges of being a social campaigner is that is that the public attention is so fleeting, um, and and it feels like when you're in the middle of a an upsurge in public attention, you you know in, in, inevitably after something like the murder of Sarah Everard, something that shocks people out of their malaise, and when you're in the middle of that, it feels like anything is achievable. And that, you know, everybody's focusing on this issue, politics, public, you know, the institutions, everybody wants to do something. You know, the, the other example is Black Lives Matter, you know, in, in, in the summer of, of 2021. And then the public attention shifts and then all of a sudden you're back in, you know, if, if you've not, I suppose it's, it's, it's aware, it's that if you've not done, if you've not used that moment to lock in, some processes which are going to um, survive the shift in public attention, such as new laws, such as an inquiry, such as commit, you know, proper commitments from politicians. If you haven't used that moment, um, it's, uh, it's, it, it, you've wasted it um, and you never know when it's going to come. And, 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 and I suppose that one, one thing I see from this book and correct me if I'm wrong is, is you're putting in place, a, a a game plan um, for the next time public attention comes over, so that you're ready, and that the movement or the the movement for social change is ready to to say, well, look, we've we've got. Thank you for your attention. We've not, we've got the solutions. They're right here. Um, and 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 if you were going to focus on one solution, um, one positive difference, what would it be? I think that's too difficult to answer. I think I think the point is it can't be just one thing. It has to be top yeah. to bottom. It has to be government to citizen. It has to be culture wide, and I think it has to be men and women. And and 
just picking up that point you made about men's engagement it's so so vital for men to engage with this even though it's I imagine extremely uncomfortable at times and I, I say that as a white person who's been trying to actively engage with issues of racism and has properly found that fairly uncomfortable over the last however many years it is deeply uncomfortable to engage with structural inequalities from which you benefit but there's also huge harm to men from the culture that we have at the moment so there's a study I quoted in the book a 2018 study that said that 61% of 18 to 24 year old men said they felt compelled to display hyper-masculine behaviour in difficult situations. 55% of them, so over half, said crying in front of others made them feel like less of a man. And 53% felt that society expects men never to ask for emotional support, even when they need it. And against that background, we see that 85% of violent crimes are committed by men and men's suicide rate is three times that of women. The damage is there for men as well. The damage that tells men that crying isn't manly, but violence is, is seen in those statistics that lead to male suicide and male violence, rather than a society where men feel able to talk about or express emotions and able to condemn violence, which is what we ultimately have to work towards resources for the police um that's something you focus on and i would just want to pick you up on something you said before which was about using the laws we have um and and uh, i think sometimes there's a danger in asking for new laws obviously sometimes you need new laws but the danger is people think that's the solution whereas in fact it's actually you know often the laws are fine not fine but the, lo- the laws are sufficient if they were used properly you know if rape if rape was properly prosecuted um and and but the police might say well in today's day and age the resources it takes to examine a you know messages on a phone which to the public might sound not very much but for anyone who's ever been through a phone and seen all the messages um it's a lot that the, the police might say well without the resources with all the will in the world with all the cultural sensitivity and 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 intent good intentions we just can't do it we can't we we can't prosecute cases where there are two people's you know one person's word against another no witnesses without the resources of being able to properly examine the the wider circumstances and how big a part do you think that's playing um or is it just an excuse i really do think it's an enormous part of the problem and I, i should say and i've said this in the book um there are some really really brilliant police officers who are trying so hard to secure convictions. And it is hard, as we discussed last time, to secure convictions for rape sometimes, because very often there's only two people there when it happens. We don't have things like CCTV or eyewitnesses like we might for a street mugging, say. And it's really important against that background to be able to properly investigate all of the avenues you have, including, for example, a defendant's phone, something that might have evidence on it that's capable of supporting a conviction. But Technology is moving so fast and police over the last 10 years, as I've said in the book, have suffered a real terms funding cut of about 33%. So not only is technology improving and increasing and becoming harder and harder to properly investigate without a lot of time and money, but the police have less money and fewer people to do it, which is a double bind. I'm going to leave it there. Um, although we could 
talk all day but what i want people to do is rather than listening to us talk anymore go out and buy the book and and read it and send you any questions that they have um or come to i'm guessing are you doing sort of um events where where people can um see you speak about the book I am. So I'm doing one in Glasgow in May and I'm doing one in Birmingham, uh, which I think is, uh, let me see. So I'm doing the I Write Festival on the 14th of May in Glasgow. And there are various digital and online events coming up as well. Um, if you want to go to the HarperCollins website, then they're all listed on there under the book. Great. Well, we'll make sure there's a link to that. Um, thank you, Harriet. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for writing this very important and timely book. Um, and I hope that everybody out there will have a chance to read it um, and perhaps even see you talk about it at some point, either online or in person. Thank you so much. So thank you very much to Harriet Johnson, who's a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers and the author of the upcoming Enough, The Violence Against Women and How to End It, which is published by William Collins. If you want more information about Harriet's book or about the podcast or you want to support it, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. The Better Human Podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. See you next time. My name is Adam Wagner and this is The Better Human Podcast. <laughs>